Hello, everyone. Are you on your way to shift empty success into fulfillment? Welcome to Uplift My Life Today, the podcast. now in a safe place where we converse, explore, reflect, connect, and deep dive into our inner world together. Fulfillment always starts from within. Every conversation and discussion here is a journey, one that you will likely to continue even after the episode completes. My name is Astuti Marto Sudirjo. I am your host. And thank you for choosing to uplift your life today. The experience, the beautiful experience to be a part of my mother's dying process inspired me to ask Rachelle Furer to share some key insights into the emotional and physical stages that a person goes through in a natural dying process. This is what this episode focuses on after discussing what natural death means and how to prepare ourselves for a good one in the previous episode. Rochelle is an international counselor, therapist, and coach. She trained as a bereavement counselor at a private hospice in Johannesburg, South Africa, and went on to give her time to the dying and their families during the process of transition and continued to support those left behind in finding their way back into their lives. Having made her home in Switzerland, she has also completed palliative care support training here and continues to offer spiritual care not only to those faced with their end of life but also to those closest to them on request. I wish you a time of learning and contemplation. I think I want to come back to the fact that Let's not talk about accidents, let's not talk about violence, let's not talk about wars, let's not talk about suicide right now. Those are all other deaths and and very important deaths and very different. But let's talk about what we today in our ignorance would call a natural death and that is that somebody becomes ill mm-hmm. at some time in their life and then, as we see it, dies of their illness. Mm-hmm. And that can be in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or at a very high age. And even at a very high age, there's generally some kind of failing, which we then see as illness, yeah. that precedes then death itself. Yeah. So there's this dying process. So the dying process, even though the body's declining, the dying process, that process of transition, like conception or like the water's breaking and there's this process then of birth, mm-hmm. that process starts at some stage, that process of dying. Mm-hmm. Now that process can happen, all of it, in five minutes or five seconds. Yes a little bit quicker than most births, Mm -hmm. even though some births are very quick, or it can take years. There are steps to it that will not necessarily be evenly distributed. Some are long, some are short. Mm -hmm. So we have what is called medically or in palliative care, the rehabilitation process. Mm 
And that is what is well known from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. That's the five stages mm -hmm. of dying. Here in Switzerland, as I think I've spoken to you before, we have a psychologist who is specialized in um, supporting dying people in palliative care. And she puts it into three mm -hmm. rather than five. The sort of before transition and after, more or less, which I find easier in mm -hmm. some ways. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross actually observed the dying and put it into five stages, which has been reinterpreted for grieving as well. Mm -hmm. However, originally... It was for the... It was for the dying, dying process. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Originally, it was for the dying. It's been reinterpreted because it can be applied to grieving. Yeah. But as I say, she did it for the dying. And those stages as well are not linear. Mm -hmm. So you don't go through the first stage and then you go to the second stage and then you go, I mean, because that would just be too easy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you can be in two stages simultaneously and you can be in stage four and revert to stage one. <laughs> So, so this rehabilitation process, as I say, is it, it's these five stages. So they're the stages of denial. Mm -hmm. No. I'm not dying. <laughs> I'm not dying. I will never die. Yes. <laughs> I'm too young to die. Yes. Um, I will beat this illness, whatever. Yeah. So that's one of the stages. Then you have... A stage that is called bargaining and the bargaining stage is if I just change my lifestyle exactly stop smoking run yes. more eat more vegetables donate sleep, more donate more exactly whatever pray more meditate more light more candles in church whatever it is this is the bargaining stage then I will be saved from death because living is my right mm -hmm. <laughs> and death is a failure. Mm. So depression is another stage and, and that's a really difficult one because that's when we have to come to terms mm. with the fact that life is finite and there's only a certain amount of time left and generally, because of our condition, we can't do everything that we'd still like to do with that time as well. Yes. And then another stage is anger. Why me? Mm, why now? Why now? But I still wanted to do. <laughs> and I don't want to fail. I don't want to die. Yes. <laughs> and my granddaughter is getting married in two years or whatever it is and I want to be there and so there's the tantrum mm -hmm. so depression and anger can be very very closely related mm -hmm. and then there's that moment of grace where we come into acceptance mm -hmm. okay this is happening and it is irreversible and I think it's that moment, that irreversible. Mm -hmm. I am on a path that is irreversible. And yet, even getting to that stage, we can go back into bargaining. Mm -hmm. We can go back into denial. Mm -hmm. We can go back into depression or anger. So we move between them all in that moment that in palliative care is called rehabilitation mm -hmm. because we still believe that there's a way out yes it's, 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 a, it's a kind of like a natural process when you go into a very unknown zone and you're like i'm okay but maybe if i get this information i will feel a bit better about it or maybe you know this kind of process in mm -hmm. a way so i have have accompanied people who have what we would say battled mm. with cancer for instance for 
16 years Mm -hmm. or 10 years or 7 years Mm -hmm. and so they've been diagnosed and the first thing is denial Mm. no no not me no no it can't be let's see another doctor (laughs) yes Yes, or whatever and and then there's the bargaining well if I have this operation or I have chemotherapy or whatever and with a lot of people it gives them back a certain quality of life Mm -hmm. and they go into remission and things are fine so this is the rehabilitation Mm -hmm. period But there comes a time with some of them where chemo can only be palliative as in to lessen Mm. the pain. Mm -hmm. Or radiation can only be palliative to lessen the discomfort and the pain, but no longer to cure or to heal. Mm And that's where we then go into the anger, depression, <laughs> and, and, and acceptance, or we go back into de- denial and bargaining, and, but it worked before. And so, you know, it can encompass a long time, mm-hmm. or it can be a short time. If, it, if you get diagnosis and four months later, you've transitioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you could also, up to the day before you die, be in this space of, this will get me out. Mm-hmm. I have also accompanied um, someone who had pancreatic cancer and went in for an operation and the operation didn't go well and it was operated again and again and again and again within three months and then sent to rehab. And in all of that time, it was just just do this and you'll get better. Just do this and you'll get better. Just do this and you'll get better. And was in rehab and really thought, it's all paid off. I will get better. Mm-hmm. Started not to feel so well with the breathing and whatever. Went back into hospital. And it had metastasized into the lungs. Mm. And this person and the family were still talking up to 24 hours before he died about what could we do. Wow, okay. So that rehabilitation period can be endlessly long and can last until really, really... Really, the time of the vision. But again, the next stage medically can come before the rehabilitation period is mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And that is when they go into pre-terminal. Mm. So pre-terminal is, there is nothing we can do for them any longer except keep them comfortable, mm-hmm. medically. Mm-hmm. Then comes the terminal, and then comes the final. Mm-hmm. And there we go through stages of and, and these again, that they're not sort of steps where one is finished and the other one starts. So they can happen concurrently and overlappingly. So people start to become weaker. Mm-hmm. And it's noticeable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though they've been weak, but all of a sudden there's this shift, as you said with yes. your father. Yes. They become weaker. They start to lose their sense of smell, Mm -hmm. and therefore that goes very strongly together with taste. They're not hungry any longer because their body doesn't need the fuel, because the body is what we call centralizing. It's pulling its energy into the most vital organs to support them, and it no longer needs the fuel. So with the, the taste and the smell going and the not the need for the fuel they start to eat less or nothing mm-hmm. now there are many cultures where food is seen as life-giving mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the loved ones will say no but you have to eat yeah and they will cook things at home and they will bring them their favorite foods and the dying person will do their utmost 
for the loved one and try to take a bite or two, not want to, mm-hmm. but for out of love for the loved one. But the body cannot digest mm-hmm. in that moment, and it causes the loved one more pain. Mm-hmm than anything else, which most people don't yeah, realize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if they knew that this was so misplaced, because what they're trying to do is sustain life when somebody is very, very obviously leaving, mm-hmm. and then it becomes about the loved one not wanting to let go. Yeah, yeah. I remember my mother was saying, in hindsight, the last month before my dad died, she noticed two main things. One, he ate less. Second, he became more quiet. That she was getting annoyed because it was like, why are you so quiet? Why don't you want to chat with me? And she was like, oh my God, I didn't know he was processing. His body is getting ready. And you see, I know that a lot of us, once we've witnessed or accompanied somebody, afterwards we have these moments of burning shame. Mm-hmm where we say, but I did the wrong thing, I misunderstood, Mm -hmm. which is why we should talk about it. Yes, exactly. And which is why I'm now coming to the uncomfortable bit, which is really the dying process. Mm -hmm. And so as much as we want to sustain the life within our loved one, we should not encourage them to eat if they say they are not hungry. Mm -hmm. It goes against everything in us and that is the difficulty of we have to be able to carry that Mm -hmm. to deal with that Mm -hmm. because as I say it can cause them extreme pain Mm -hmm. and that is actually the last thing that you'd want Mm -hmm. so they lose their appetite and at some stage they then stop drinking Mm -hmm. now this is really the terminal phase, they stop drinking often for two reasons. One of them is that they don't require the fluid any longer and again giving them something to drink Mm -hmm. taxes the system and is very uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that even a lot of doctors in that moment think that they need to be hydrated and push fluid intravenously. And that can cause such irritation and pain within the body. Okay, so what from a palliative point of view is better, for instance, if you, they often say, well, it's because we're putting um, painkillers into saline which obviously hydrates the body. But if the, the um, kidneys are not functioning, if they're closing down already, and that's, that's starting that really final process, then putting all that saline in is really not helping. Mm-hmm. It's making the death process difficult and painful. painful. Mm-hmm. So the other pain that they might be experiencing for whatever reason is patches on the body so it's absorbed via the skin Mm. is a better process Mm. however what we now know and I'm not a doctor so this is all from palliative um, training and observation so if any of this information a doctor thinks is wrong they're right and I'm wrong (laughs) but this is observation and, and experience and training but In the last stages, the body seems to flood with its own painkillers. So generally, in the final stages, terminal to final stages, the person dying will experience less pain from whatever disease that they have. So dying per se is not painful for most people. it is patches, as long as we don't try to feed them mm-hmm. and keep them hydrated. <laughs> this is good to know. Yeah. To make it less painful, because it's designed not to be painful yes. if you don't interfere. 
Yes. Basically. Yes. Okay. Or it seems to be. Yeah. That's we don't know. What we don't know, yeah. but as I say, this is my palliative training, yeah. this is my observation, this is what I've read from a lot of books, and a lot of palliative doctors will say so, but other doctors who are not trained in palliative don't have this understanding necessarily, mm-hmm. and they will fight you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the one thing. The other thing that I wanted to mention also about giving patients something to drink is that... As the body centralizes, and that is a palliative expression, Mm -hmm. as the body centralizes, so it brings all of its energy into the middle Mm -hmm. to sustain the vital organs until they start switching off one after the other, and the heart will switch off last. The energy levels sink, and the strength just declines. Mm -hmm. And therefore, one of the things about drinking is that they no longer have the energy to swallow. There again, please don't give them anything to drink. What does happen, though, is that as the energy starts to decline and their strength declines, they can no longer keep their jaw closed often. Mm. So their jaw will fall open. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mm. And... Therefore, they will breathe through their mouth and their mouth will become very dry. And this is the point where the loving person goes, oh, you need something to drink. No, Mm -hmm. because they they can't swallow. Mm -hmm. So they could choke. (laughs) Great. So what, what most caregivers are then trained in by professionals is with a sponge to wet the lips, put some into the mouth, something wet. Or you can give little um, ice cubes of water that dissolve slowly, or tea ice cubes or whatever to dissolve in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Because the mouth does get dry, mm-hmm. but they do not want to drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Then again, physically, they pass less urine. Mm-hmm. So because they're not drinking and because the kidneys are probably no longer working, they're not digesting, so they don't need to go to the toilet any longer. But what then does start to happen is you can see that they're no longer fully present in their eyes. And they find it very strenuous to swallow. Mm-hmm. So not just drink, but to swallow anyway, because we mm-hmm. swallow all the time, even yeah. when we're not drinking. Which means that saliva mm-hmm. collects in their throat. Yes. yes. And we call it colloquially a death rattle. It has a much fancier name, medically. Mm-hmm. But... We call it the death rattle because it sounds like a rattle. And a lot of caregivers and loved ones witnessing or hearing that get very frightened because it sounds as though it's hurting them. Mm -hmm. And some doctors get frightened as well and they start to suck it off. Mm -hmm. But it accumulates again. Mm -hmm. Now, research professes that it doesn't hurt Mm -hmm. the person because they are already so far out of their body and it's just saliva yes yes (laughs) and that it actually doesn't hurt at all but it does hurt to put an instrument down and suck it off Mm -hmm. every few minutes Mm -hmm. so all of these interventions that we perceive as loving actually aren't Mm. Yeah. Now, often people will be either already comatose or perceived to be comatose by this time or sedated mm. by this time. Mm-hmm. And then leaving their body will be very peaceful. Mm-hmm. Most people are no longer speaking. Yeah. 
by that stage. By that stage. Yeah. I have experienced, however, that just before the soul has exited the body or the energy has exited the body, or whatever you want to call it, but there is an exodus. Mm. There is an exodus mm. witnessed and experienced. Before that happens, before that last breath, mm -hmm. some dying people somehow gather the energy together and they will open their eyes. That's what happened with my mother, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then she goes, she went. Open their eyes, sometimes there will be a movement. I have witnessed a four-year-old who was comatose for 12 hours beforehand, mm -hmm. four minutes before he took his last breath. He opened his eyes, he looked at his grandfather, who was by his bed, picked up his hand, waved at his grandfather, closed his eyes and then died. Why didn't he wave to his parents? Because at that moment when he opened his eyes, both parents had stood up mm. to do something. Mm. And that's also something that can happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As much as the loved ones want to be there, so that somebody doesn't die alone. Yes. Often, in the moment where the loved one cannot wait any longer before they go and have a, a little loo break, mm -hmm. in that moment, the dying person will leave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because somehow the energy of the loved one who is wanting them to stay and not leave them or whatever it is somehow seems to block it yeah yeah and other people need that energy so again there we have differences yeah. so don't take it personally <laughs> if someone leaves in that moment where you think if i just weed in my pants <laughs> sometimes that's What's How it's meant to be. Yeah. yeah. Now, with the centralizing of this energy in the terminal and final stages, and as I say, this can all happen within five minutes, mm, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, or longer, three days or a week or whatever. Once the death rattle has started, then we're talking of hours yeah. maximum. I remember that, yeah. But everything else can. But not everybody has a death rattle. Yeah. yeah. You know, search me. Anyway, it would be lovely to sort of put <laughs> it down. Yeah, yeah, but it's, these are just the, the, the possibilities. But in those last stages of centralization, you also notice not only the, the mouth falling open and the, the weakness and the not speaking, and yes, they stop speaking generally. Mm. But also, if you look at the extremities, because the blood supply is also being pulled back, so it's not an energetic centralizing, it is a physical centralizing, and therefore oxygen is not going to the extremities, you will see it becoming dappled, we call it, so it's sort of like blue and white and gray, mm -hmm. yeah. the toes, yeah. the fingers, yeah. the fingernails, yeah. whatever. And you know, this is really so irreversible, it's beyond a joke. It's a unique color that you would recognize. It, yes. Basically. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the changing color. Yeah. And you can watch it advance. Mm -hmm. So it goes from the toes, and then the extremities get colder as well. Mm -hmm. Then it goes to the whole foot. Then it goes up the calves to the knees, etc. The same with mm -hmm. the, the hands. The, mm -hmm. um, and it becomes cold. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that you know. Mm -hmm. The point of death, if you prefer to call it transition, is imminent. Yeah. And it is irreversible. And it doesn't matter what kind of machine you use or whatever. This is on its way. But in the pre-terminal, terminal, and final stages, 
you can also find because the 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 rehabilitation stage is a very emotional (laughs) and very out there and in your face kind of stage people become quieter because they start an inner journey yeah yeah they start that inner journey and they start that process and they start spending more time, to put it symbolically, out of their body, mm-hmm. on the other side, whatever you want to call it, for those who, who believe that when you die, that's it. I respect that belief as well. However, they are still not present in the outer mm-hmm. world Mm-hmm. of this physical existence they withdraw into the inner world of this physical existence mm-hmm. so touch feeling thoughts whatever mm-hmm. so whether you believe that's still inside the body or outside the body it's up to you mm-hmm. um, yeah but it's that inner understanding even when they're not speaking when they're maybe in a deep sleep, maybe slightly comatose or fully comatose. There is an understanding, a medical understanding today as well, that they still hear you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that they still feel you. And so in palliative care, great, great value is laid on you do not talk about certain things whilst with a patient. Mm. You do not disrespect this person and talk as though they're already dead. Mm -hmm. You speak with the utmost respect and Mm -hmm. softly. Mm -hmm. You also touch them Mm -hmm. gently Mm -hmm. and slowly. And in palliative care, you will see that people who are half out of it or totally in a coma, they will touch them first and say hello and say the name. We are going to move you onto your side or we are going to give you a bed bath or we are going to moisten your mouth so that they know so they're not treated mm-hmm. just like an a body, yeah. a piece of flesh. Mm-hmm. And so loved ones can stroke them, mm-hmm. can hold their hands, mm-hmm. can whisper lovingly in their ears. All of that is still greatly appreciated and will arrive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think A message here for those left behind is don't write them off until they've taken that last breath. Mm -hmm. Now, the more that they go into their inner world and the quieter that they become, some of them become very agitated in that inner world. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. Some of them become very quiet. But the more that they go into that, the more they're already in a different dimension Mm -hmm. and the more that their language will become symbolic and the agitation can be about they're constantly trying to get out of bed Mm -hmm. which can be quite distressing for the person looking after them they're constantly trying to get out of bed and you're constantly trying to stop them because they don't have the balance, they don't have the strength, they don't yeah. have the whatever. Yeah. And you don't want to turn your back and find them halfway down the corridor. Yeah. It's for their own good, but you're like in this battle with them. And if you ask them, where are you going? Mm-hmm. They might say, I've got a plane to catch, or I need to there's a taxi outside or mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever. I need to go somewhere. And that's signaling that they know that they're on a journey out of this body. And the kindest thing to do is to pick them up where they are Mm -hmm. in conversation and not go, what do you mean you're going somewhere? You're far too weak to go somewhere. Get back into bed. (laughs) So there are whole trainings and books about how to converse with people so not to infantilize them Mm. 
in that moment, but still to engage at their level. The other thing is they can become very hot, even though their extremities are cold for you to touch. They're constantly throwing their bedclothes mm. off, mm. and you're constantly putting their bedclothes over them because they're very hot. Now, if you can engage in conversation, it might seem utterly delirious to you. And this is a term that a lot of doctors then use. And they say, no, these people are delirious. And they're delirious because they're dehydrated. So let's give them something to drink and put them on a, on a drip. Actually, it's not delirium or hallucination. It's actually symbolic. Nowadays, it's recognized as symbolic because they're on a different level. Can they also have a high temperature? Like a fever? That's what my mom had. It hmm? uh, was a fever. Yeah. yeah. For many days. Yeah. yeah. So if they're hot and have a high fever, then you put cold things on them to cool them down. Mm. Like cold, wet cloth on their forehead. You give them a hot water bottle with cool water in it or something like that. Mm. And keep them safe. And if they're talking you pick them up where they mm. are. But as I say, that's a whole different conversation because it is quite sensitive to yeah. their needs. I think it's difficult to understand that you need to take them seriously. Mm. Because to you, a lot of what they say makes no sense. Mm. And it's so easy to say somebody's delirious or hallucinating. And then try to take them seriously, but actually to treat them like a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's to find that balance. Yeah. But as I say, there's, there's training on that, but there's also books on that um, about how to, to pick them up. And there's a very, very good book around those kind of things written by two palliative care nurses, um, a, very many years of experience in America used to, uh, the hospice nurses and it's called Final Gifts mm. so it's about conversations with the dying and how to pick them up at their level without infantilizing without writing them off as delirious and without trying to correct them mm -hmm. bring them back into reality yeah, our world what we perceive yes what we perceive yeah. because they're perceiving and Something it's else. very real yeah i remember there's a period of a few days when my mother she stopped talking i think she's because of uh, she went into coma and then she came back she could speak for a couple of days and then she stopped speaking so it's all about gesture and i remember a cup for a few days She's, I know she's seeing something and she wanted me to, to connect with them. So she was inviting me in. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I just lay along with her. I said, okay. So it's almost like she said, say hello to, say hello to. And I said, hello, hello. I, I don't see what she sees, obviously. But it was a very inclusive process for her. <laughs> and I noticed this for days. <laughs> so... Thank you so much for bringing that up because that was going to be my next subject. Okay. And then I think we've sort of done the big picture, yes. given people enough to think about it. Yes. Anyway, but there's this other phenomena. Yeah. And it's, for me, it's very, very important to speak about. And that is that I have witnessed a huge amount of people. So I can't say most because obviously my experience, given how many people there are on the planet, you yeah. know, that would be arrogant. But most of the people that I've experienced dying, they have spoken about mm -hmm. or with gestures, mm -hmm. as you say, or mumbled about mm -hmm. in their delirium, as you would say, about people in the room that they could mm -hmm. see very, very real. They could see them and hear them and experience them to, or partly better than they could me. Mm. 
And this little boy that I said I told you about just yeah. beforehand, um, a, a stunning little boy. He, he died four years, four days old, and his death made a huge impact on me. It was a it was a very very beautiful experience, as sad as it was, of obviously. Um, in his dying process, he spoke to his mother and said, don't worry about me dying. Baby Jesus is here to pick me up and we'll play with his toys. Oh, mm. so sweet. Um, a very good friend of mine from training in South Africa, she died in her 40s and, and we, everybody was unprepared. You know, she had Parkinson's in early stages, but she then died of liver problems. Mm. I'm not quite sure any longer whether it was liver cancer, but and she died in a period of a few weeks. She was in a in a new relationship, but she she was a widow. Mm-hmm. And she spoke about her husband being at her bed mm-hmm. to pick her up. Mm-hmm. And she would speak to him like she was speaking to everybody else in the room as though he was there. Mm-hmm. And she was saying Oh, just wait a moment. I just want to speak to so-and-so. And not quite yet. Yes, I'm coming. <laughs> kind of thing. And, and, you know, many other people that um, have been picked up, mm. if you want. Mm. People have spoken about beloved pets from when mm. they were small. And it has been very real for them. Mm. And us in this world have never been able to see it. Mm-hmm. But what it brings me to is there's often amongst those left behind guilt and shame. If only I'd arrived half an hour earlier, if only I hadn't gone home to shower, if only I'd got an earlier flight, if only, if only, if only. Because I didn't want so-and-so to die alone. Mm -hmm. And the message I get, and a lot of people in palliative care share with me around that is that nobody dies alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because even though they might not have somebody here physically, the transition is out of physical mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. And they are being picked up. Yeah. Now, I know that's a difficult concept for those who think after death is nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. but that is my experience. Yeah. And I think personally that it is more comforting for the people left behind if they can think or know that they were sitting at so-and-so's bed whilst they took their last breath. Yeah. For them it's more comforting, but whether it was really of great value in that moment, the person leaving the body, mm-hmm. or whether it was of greater value to have the beloved rabbit or dog or sister or parent or grandparent there I don't know because that that moment that point of death that's where the mystery really starts yes 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 and that's a whole different subject yes so those are in in broad brush strokes Mm -hmm very broad brush strokes, having left out a huge amount, which we could talk about for a long time again, just opening the subject Mm -hmm. of dying and death, Mm -hmm. which we will all encounter no matter how many expensive creams we put on our face, (laughs) or how many supplements we swallow, or how often we go to the gym, or not. We're going to get there. We are all going to get there. And I find it personally very difficult when people say they died too young, Mm -hmm. because I find there's a misunderstanding that we arrive in this world 
with a specific amount. There's a good 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 time to die or not. There's a good time yeah. to die or not. Yeah. My mother will be turning 102 in October if she lives that long. She has been wanting to die for many years. It has not happened. Yet, though, she you can really see the decline um, in her organs and everything. But she's not there yet. Mm-hmm. I have come to find the process very sacred. I have come to find that denying people that process makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Though maybe there's a different process, mm-hmm. and that is something I, I don't know. Yeah. I find that dying process really that last decline, mm-hmm. whatever age you are, I find incredibly sacred. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much pain and suffering somebody might have gone through in that process and before that process in the rehabilitation years sometimes that moment of death that moment of the last breath you've been there with your mother I've been there with many people there is a grace mm. that is present at the bed and in the room if it's a room there is a stillness a peace mm. a grace it is so palpable yeah. Yeah. it is sacred I can't think of a different word whether you believe in God or not mm. it is you could eat it kind of thing. Yeah. It envelops everything. Everybody in there. Everything. It infuses you. And when that's there, you know within the next minutes. And it, you know that the energy leaves the body either with a short breath, with a long breath, with a gesture, with open, closed eyes, with a little cough, or even with a kind of whirlwind of energy. So many ways. And yet the peace mm. in that room, and it stays for a while. Yet yeah. it doesn't just whoosh, yeah. like like a you know, like the, the films of UFOs that take off or something. It stays in the room. And it slowly, slowly fades. And that is why in palliative care, everybody who accompanies people in palliative care to their death, that whilst that energy impregnates the room, the last breath has been taken, the body starts to relax Mm -hmm. into death and looks peaceful. Mm no matter what the pain was before. It, you can only say with all the loss and the heartache and the sadness, it is such a special moment to be part of. It is such a privilege that I would actually urge people to be courageous enough to be part of it, it changes your understanding of death for yourself. And it is the hugest gift, parting gift of the dying person. Mm -hmm. And those of us who work in that area, you know, we do joke a bit about that you become a bit addicted. anybody's death will do kind of thing and it's not disrespectful what I'm saying now but it is it is something that you will never witness anywhere I I, I have to agree I have to agree and I I feel very privileged I didn't get the chance with with my father I recognize everything you were saying and there were a number of people in the room around my mom's bed 
my sister being one uh, the two nurses that work with us and the guy that helps us with we would there was so much quiet there was really quiet we are focusing on her I could sense this energy in the room and then she opened her eyes and I remember looking at her and I nod have a good journey that was what I was saying thank you and I'll see you later and then she closed two breath and she left there was this serene in the room very quiet and we are looking at her and we can, I can see her body relaxes and it felt for it felt forever until my sister says she left and I said yes and I remember if I had my wish I would like to stay there for a bit longer and not unfortunately coincidentally there is a group her friends they were reciting Quran because this is their rituals every week across the street and one of them came by wanting to say hello but thankfully it was after she finished so we we had the moment where it was just us and then we we do this and I remember breathing in relief also like ah yeah. it was so beautiful and it was very peaceful yeah. and I was saying wow that changed you that changed me yeah yes it does yeah it does and it's like time stands still yes yes mm. Mm. yes and so I think there's so much more to say mm -hmm. but I think let's leave our listeners with that mm -hmm. that you so beautifully described and there are so many ways but I have found that that moment of transition that moment of detachment when time stands still before and after you'll never get that moment back but if you have the privilege and the courage to be there not because they shouldn't die alone because yes. we're, we're not so certain that that always helps <laughs> but some people it will help some people it it won't but if you can be in the presence mm -hmm. of that sacred moment that is a final parting gift and there is nothing like it. Yeah. As we close this second episode, my heart elates. Reminiscing the privileged opportunity to provide my mother with her parting gift. I hope your heart is touched too in a magical way. The next episode will focus on the people who care for the dying. What we can do to support ourselves in such an intense journey. I will see you then and be well everybody. Bye!